Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. again everybody and welcome to the tournament poker edge podcast i'm your host clayton fletcher so happy to be bringing you another episode after taking last week off for a variety of reasons not the least of which was our ninth anniversary episode featuring Derek tenbush and diego lamanto was uh, so well-received, actually broke a number of records for listenership, so we decided to leave it out there in the ether in hopes that more of you would find it and enjoy it, and I sincerely hope that you did. Um, coming back this week with a continuation of our WSOP Final Table, Main Event Final Table Review, um, this seems to be pretty popular. You guys seem to be enjoying our discussion of hands that were played on poker's biggest stage last year, maybe trying to help you get in the mood for the upcoming WSOP. Uh, I also want to answer a question from a listener that was presented via Twitter uh, concerning the hand that we discussed in the aforementioned ninth anniversary episode. So uh, we will get to that in just a minute. But to kick things off today, I want to update those of you who have been curiously following my ongoing saga with Bally's Las Vegas. Uh, for those who may not have listened to previous episodes very quickly, uh, I went to Vegas to perform in a charity event with Matt Stout's uh, CSOP, Charity Series of Poker, um, organization, which was an amazing time. I stayed for a few extra days, and on one of those days, I came home from playing poker and discovered that my hotel room had been burglarized. So here's the update, guys. The latest word from Bally's was an official letter stating that they claim no responsibility for what happened to me, despite the fact that there is no security in or out of the elevators, no cameras in the hallways uh, around the hotel rooms. And according to them, I left my door unlocked. Now, I don't know how many of you have stayed in a hotel in Las Vegas or a hotel anywhere, but it is very rare to find a hotel room which can actually be unlocked. So obviously, I disagree adamantly with their findings. Um, I don't know how I could leave a door that doesn't unlock unlocked unless they meant that I didn't close it, but I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't leave my hotel room door open. So, uh, to be continued, I suppose, I do appreciate everyone who has reached out to me on Twitter, at Clayton Comic, to uh, express their sympathy for what happened. Um, and for those who have tweeted, at Bally's Vegas, I really appreciate that so much because... They need to know that this will not go unnoticed by the poker community and by the 
uh, tourism community and by anyone who might be planning a trip to Las Vegas. Uh, they need to know that they need to tighten up their security. And when things like this happen, I think these companies should take at least partial responsibility for their role in allowing these things to happen. Uh, you take a really nice hotel like the Wynn or the Venetian, and they have security guards around the clock at the hotel elevators. And they check to make sure that the people that are going into and out of those elevators are registered guests of the property. And although that can't possibly prevent burglary, it would go a long way towards uh, at least minimizing the likelihood of it. Uh, as it stands right now, anyone can enter the hotel elevators at Bally's unchecked, unnoticed, and unhindered. And that appears to be what happened to me, although some cameras in the hallway would sure go a long way towards finding out for sure what happened. Uh, the theory that I have, at least, is that someone uh, broke into my hotel room. They found pieces of wire that were bent up. To me, it looked like a lock-picking device. And that's my theory on how someone got into my room, not that I left it unlocked. I don't think it's possible to leave a door unlocked at Bally's Hotel and Casino on Las Vegas Boulevard in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'm not finished fighting. Um, I don't know if it's going to make sense for me to go to court over this, but the step that I'm taking now is writing some letters to some uh, executive types at Caesars Entertainment, and I will certainly keep you guys posted on any further developments on this case. In the meantime, my passport is missing. Several old cell phones of mine have been stolen. Uh, my laptop, which importantly held a lot of episodes of this podcast that will now never be heard, uh, <laughs> as well as uh, some other documents such as records relating to my poker results and things that I really wish I could recover. Um, but obviously I'm not holding my breath, but it would be so nice to be able to have some of those things back. And I really feel violated and unsupported by Bally's Las Vegas. So I'm not happy about how this has all shaken out. And just by virtue of the fact that it took over a month for them to even get back in touch with me. And only then because I had a lawyer contact them. I'm pretty sure that no one would have even bothered to deal with my case had I not called in the big guns. So anyway, uh, if anyone knows an attorney in Las Vegas who might want to take on my case uh, for a low cost or pro bono, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, I'm out about $5,000 worth of uh, cash and prizes, which isn't a lot. And that's why it might be hard for me to find a lawyer uh, who actually wants to take this to court. But I feel like that's the problem. Bally's can get away with this because nothing in the end gets done about it. So I'm looking to change that. And I hope that you guys will continue to support me and help me in that. All right. Enough about that. Let's get to this message that I received on Twitter. It's from a Twitter user, Tony. Uh, Tony is at T Newman 4 And he says... One thing that didn't come up in the strategy discussion that surprised me and wondering if you could comment 
it seemed to me that a major issue was Derek's range was capped and Villains was not, particularly on that board. Perhaps Derek could have had an ace-jack type of hand that called the three-bet pre-flop, but Villain was uncapped. No? If you check-raise flop, aren't you almost obligated to follow through despite a bad turn card and give the Villain a chance to fold? All right, so let's talk about this question, and thank you so much for... uh, not only this interaction, but for all of the uh, tweeting back and forth, Tony, I really love uh, interacting with you on Twitter. I don't know whether to call that talking because we're not really talking. And it seems odd to say, you know, typing with our thumbs at each other. But Tony and I go back and forth uh, quite a bit and I really enjoy. He's obviously a a thinking player and uh, someone that, that listens very carefully to the podcast. So now let's review the hand so that You guys can get back up to speed and we can explore the question that Tony poses with these tweets. Just a quick review. Derek is playing on ACR and uh, he's in a tournament. He's got about 100 big blinds. He's doing well. Uh, He's about halfway through, I guess about halfway to the money. Uh, He raises with queen 10 from late position and then calls a three bet from the button uh, with the queen 10 and flops the nuts ace king jack Um, and then heads up on the flop Derek checks to the three better who bets and then Derek check raises and gets called the turn pairs the ace which is not a card we wanted to see. And at that point, Derek decides the best course of action is to check. And that's where Tony's question comes into play. So let's talk about a capped range. Uh, I've been getting some feedback from some listeners that uh, sometimes they don't really understand some of the terms we use on the podcast. Uh, By the way, if anyone wants to learn more poker terms and poker strategies, I recommend you join TournamentPokerEdge.com. It's very, very affordable, and the quality of coaching on this website is second to none. And that's the truth, especially when it comes to tournament strategies. All right, so now when we talk about somebody being capped, it essentially means that because of uh, the way a hand is being played, it's obvious to our opponent that we can't have the very best possible hand, the nuts. Uh, In this particular case, the best possible hand would be pocket aces. Um, Similar would be something like ace-jack or ace-king, any hand that would have a full house or four of a kind uh, on the turn. Now, once we check-raise the flop, and then check again on the turn. It's very uncommon, okay, for a player to check raise one street and then not follow through on the next street with a bet. It's rare to see two check raises in a row. It's almost a unicorn to see three check raises in a row, although I I can remember one particular hand where my opponent check-raised me successfully three times. (laughs) This was maybe 12 years ago in a NAPT event, which doesn't even exist anymore, but there was 
uh, a tournament series years ago sponsored by Poker Stars called the North American Poker Tour. And I played in quite a few events on that tour. And uh, I'll never forget feeling so owned when my opponent uh, pulled off the trifecta with the triple check raise. Check raised me on the flop, turn, and river. Um, so in Derek's shoes, having check raised the flop, are you obligated, or as Tony put it, almost obligated, to lead the turn? Well, the danger of checking the turn is that we reveal to our opponent that we don't like the turn card. Um, so, in a sense, yes, we are capped. Now, our opponent, who three-bet preflop, can easily have pocket aces, pocket kings, and all the other full house type of hands. And given that we have check-raised the flop and now apparently slowed down on the turn, yeah, I would agree that we uh, at least appear to be capped. Now, the real question to me is, how bad is that? How bad is being capped? And how big of a problem is it if our opponent knows that we don't have four of a kind? Well, the answer to that is found in the frequency with which we intend to bluff catch compared with the frequency with which we expect him to bluff. So our opponent called the check raise on the flop in position, revealing that he had something. So one of the possible hands that we could rule out was something like pocket eights, right? Three over cards. Some opponents might decide to do a continuation bet, feeling like he has more aces, kings, and jacks in his range than the opponent who raised and then called the three bet from out of position. So with that in mind, many opponents might take a small stab at the pot and then if they get called or raised, give up. So because our opponent did not give up, we're pretty well able to rule out hands like pocket eights from his range on the ace king jack flop so with that in mind we know that this board has hit our opponent it is therefore quite likely that this turn card also hit our opponent uh, one hand that doesn't like the ace is king jack if king jack is in our opponent's three betting range pre-flop Many players would just call with that hand on the button, although I think a mixture of calls and raises is probably best. Uh, I remember from two weeks ago in that episode, Derek mentioning that his opponent's three bet percentage was 4%, but it wasn't a huge sample size, so I'm not really sure how reliable that 4% number could be. But given the information we had about him, I don't think King Jack is a big part of his range. And therefore, most of his range likes that ace. Um, if you weren't sure that I'm in New York, maybe you can hear the sirens outside my window right now. <laughs> yeah, I live right in Midtown Manhattan. It's not a quiet neighborhood. Anyway, uh, 
getting back to the hand, our opponent is not capped. It's possible our opponent has the nuts. Ace, 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 king, ace, jack are all the nuts right now. We virtually never have those hands. So yes, we are capped. So now let's get to question number two, which is how big of a problem is this? Well, having a capped range against a talented opponent who is in the habit of exploiting opponents when it's obvious that their ranges are capped, that would be a huge problem for us here because we're going to get bluffed a lot. In other words, if he can see that only he can have the nuts and we can't, all he really needs to do is put in two very large bets, one on the turn and one on the river, and we'll pretty much be overfolding, maybe even folding our entire range. So the only way to protect against that is to have some bluff catchers, maybe even the hand we have, a queen 10, as a bluff catcher, will help us avoid being exploitable. So when we check the turn, it's not always with the intention of folding either on 4th Street or on the river. Now, if our opponent is not a very good player who likes to find spots to attack an opponent with a capped range, we don't need to bluff catch nearly as often. Um, Alex Fitzgerald says that the things that poker players are really bad at are bluffing and folding. So if he's right, and this opponent is part of that majority of uh, the average tournament field, then we don't have to worry about being exploited. Uh, I think players who study GTO learn a lot about trying to be unexploitable. But if your opponent is never going to exploit you anyway, it's not as important that you be unexploitable. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm talking in circles, but hopefully not. <laughs> the, the bottom line is, do we need to feel obligated to bet again when the turn comes ugly? Is it better to bet again in order to avoid notifying our opponent that our range is capped. In my opinion, no. As long as you bluff catch enough for the amount that your opponent is bluffing, you're still not going to be exploited even though your range is capped. And also, once in a blue moon, we need to check the nuts here. When that turn card gives us four of a kind or a full house, uh, we need to theoretically check um, now what kind of full house might we have ace jack I suppose could be in our range maybe jack jack although that's probably better played as a four bet with 100 big blinds pre-flop uh, I, I could see certain players doing that also maybe the ace king once in a while uh, now obviously we, we all love to keep raising with ace king until we're all in pre-flop uh, once in a while just smooth calling the three bet for deception uh, and then checking on the turn because we know it looks like we can't have ace king allowing our opponent to feel like he can take the pot away again if we perceive him as being 
the type of opponent w- that will read our turn check as weakness. But, you know, we're getting into a theoretical area that in practical usage is not necessary. Uh, the bottom line, that ace is way better for our opponent's range than it is for our range. And in most cases, we can check and fold either on the turn or the river. And as long as we're not being exploited by a masterful opponent who correctly sniffed out the fact that our range is capped and is just exploiting that, uh, we'll be just fine. Uh, The problem for me was that the opponent should be betting three of a kind with a hand like ace-queen or ace-10 when checked to. Uh, after we check-raise the flop, which we could do with king-jack, then when the ace hits on the turn, counterfeiting our bottom two pair, for example, our opponent should like his three of a kind and bet it at least once, if not twice, which is why I think we need to mix in a certain number of calls against a certain type of opponent who's bold enough to keep betting trips on this board. However, given that we block ace-queen and ace-ten with our queen-ten, those hands are a much smaller part of our opponent's range than they otherwise might be. And therefore, I think it's fine to just go ahead and fold Usually on 4th Street, but I believe in the in the hand as played, we ended up folding on the river. It's just very difficult to come up with a hand that calls our check raise on the flop and that we are still beating with our straight when the turn comes in ace. So thanks again, T. Newman 4, for your... A very thoughtful tweet. I hope that my two cents on this, uh, you know, is helpful. And now let's move ahead to the 2018 WSOP main event final table. Continuing our analysis of the play at that table. So we're five-handed at the uh, final table. Joe Cata is the short stack. With 26 million in chips, the blinds are 500,000 and 1 million with a 150,000 ante. So the starting pot is 2.25 million. Uh, Michael Dyer, who has basically been the chip leader throughout the final table, is sitting on a gigantic stack of 177 million at this point. And in second place is Nick Mannion, no, Tony Miles with 68 million. So just think about that, guys. You are the chip leader in the main event, and you have almost three times as many chips as the second place player. Uh, Nick Mannion with 66 million, uh, John Sin with 56 million. So it's basically dire with almost all the chips. Then three guys fighting it out for second, and Joe Cata basically 
uh, you know, way behind in fifth place. I mean, if he doubles up, he'll be right back in it, but that's just the nature of no limit hold'em. So, uh, in the hand that I want to talk about today, Johnson is on the button, and Tony Miles in the small blind, Nick Mannion in the big blind. Under the gun, Michael Dyer opens for a min raise to two million with the ten of spades and the six of spades. Uh, Joe Cata folds to his left. John Sin calls on the button with pocket deuces. And Nick Mannion uh, calls getting a great price in the big blind with Jack 8 offsuit. So before we uh, see the flop three-handed, let's talk about John Sin and his decision to flat five-handed with a pair of deuces. Uh, this is an optional play, I think. I, I don't really have a problem with it, but I certainly wouldn't mind seeing Sin fight fire with fire, if you will, as uh, you know, as we've documented on this podcast. Michael Dyer has been extremely aggressive in getting after just about every pot, and he really has... Uh, Hardly let up on the gas pedal at all at this table. Five-handed, any pair is probably good about 80% of the time. Um, and his deuces are unlikely to be good if he sees a three- or four-way flop, which calling on the button, he might invite both blinds to join in. And it's fine to play this hand for a set and also to play in position, maybe if Sin gets the right kind of flop that doesn't give him a set, he could still possibly win the pot under certain circumstances. But let's be honest, guys. Uh, Michael Dyer is going to get most of the pots that nobody else wants because he's got all the chips and he's not afraid to use them. And everybody else is kind of hanging around waiting for Joe Cata and his 26 big blinds M of 12 to uh, go away so we can climb the ladder. Uh, Dyer, fully aware of that, has been taking full advantage of it throughout the final table. Uh, So in this spot, I wouldn't mind if Sin decided to go ahead and three bet with the deuces, not really hoping to get called, but certainly not minding uh, if everyone folds. And, And really, it's not the end of the world if it folds back around to Dyer and he decides to call. Three betting on the button with deuces is really only disastrous when someone puts in a four bet. It hasn't been a four bet happy table. Uh, it, it really hasn't been a very aggressive table at all except for one player, Michael Dyer. And I feel like just calling with the small pocket pair here kind of plays into... His game. Um, when I see a player that's taking too many liberties, I like to find ways to throw him off of his game. And where I, I wouldn't say that Sin missed an opportunity to do that because it's not necessary to do that. I think this is a spot where I would have done it. And just kind of let everyone know that, you know, I, I'm here too. And I don't need necessarily a premium hand to fight back against 
a player that is opening with such a wide range. Uh, yeah, we're five-handed, but he's opening under the gun, five-handed under the gun with the 10-6 suited. Um, so anyway, Sin does call. Uh, Miles folds two junkie cards, and Nick Mannion completes with the Jack-8 offsuit, as mentioned before. So three to the flop, and the flop comes Jack-4-4 four, four, rainbow with one spade. So Sin missed his set, Dyer missed everything, and Mannion has top pair with an eight kicker. Mannion checks to the razor, which I, I guess, you know, that's just what everybody does now. There's almost no leading in no limit hold'em tournaments anymore. Uh, for better or for worse, it just seems that people have taken that particular tool out of the out of the bag. So I'm not surprised that he doesn't lead on this flop. And then the action is on our chip leader, Michael Dyer. Now remember, guys, he's got 10 high. He has a backdoor flush draw, I guess. And that's more than enough for our friend Michael Dyer. Uh, he he leads out. Uh, the pot is $7.3 million. And he bets his trademark small amount, $2.18 million, and gets called on the button by John Sin. Now, it's a curious spot for Sin. Uh, obviously, when you call with deuces uh, against an aggressive opponent on Jack 4-4, four, four, you're hoping a couple of things could, could go your way. Number one, you want... Nick Mannion in the big blind to fold, which he almost always will, right? Like when he has such a wide range of calling, getting such a great price before the flop, and Jack 4-4 four four is a very hard flop for him to hit. So a very high percentage of the time in Sin's shoes, I will end up heads up on the turn with my deuces, and Dyer will probably be checking a lot of king 10 king 9 ace 5 like really a, a lot of his range should be checking the turn uh unfortunately for sin mannion doesn't go away and i think that as soon as mannion overcalls on this flop john sin knows that he is done with the hand uh so Everybody sees the turn, and with 11.6 million in the pot, the turn card is a five of spades. And Mannion quickly checks to Dyer, who has now picked up a flush draw. This five of spades on the turn gives us a board of jack, four, four, five with two spades. And of course, Mannion holding. Jack 8 still has top pair. Uh, Sin, with his deuces, is probably thinking about what his hopes and dreams are for the next hand. And he's done with this one. And Dyer has now picked up a flush draw. Now, when Mannion checks on the turn, I think many players in Michael Dyer's shoes would make a huge mistake and bet again. Look, the flop went bet, call, call. Jack 4-4, four, four, guys. It went check, 
bet, call, call. Mannion is not fooling around when he calls after Sin called. The worst hand he has here is a jack something. Some other times he's going to have pocket fours or possibly even a slow played over pair, which I wouldn't recommend, but it's certainly possible. Dyer sniffs that out, and to his credit, he decides not to bet the turn, even though he picked up equity with that flush card. I really got to give him credit for that, because I think a lot of players in his shoes might fall into the autopilot. It's almost autopilot nowadays. When people pick up equity, they feel like, oh, cool, I can double barrel, because that was one of the cards that could give me more equity in the hand. Uh, you know, give Dyer his props. He does not bet this card. He checks over to Sin, who is probably surprised to see it checked to him. But at the same time, he's not going to step too far out of line with pocket deuces. He saw what everybody saw, that when Mannion overcalled on the flop, he's got a hand and he's not going to fold. So Sin wisely follows uh Dyer's lead and checks behind on the turn. And now the river comes off and it's an interesting 10 of clubs, which gives Dyer a pair. So Mannion checks again dutifully with his jack eight, probably hoping that Dyer will take a stab at this pot as he had so many pots before. I think in Mannion's shoes, he's got to feel confident that his jack is good as gold. Now, in Dyer's shoes, ask yourself, would I try to get some thin value for my pair of tens here? He's got tens and fours with the jack kicker. He's got ten six of spades on jack four four five ten. I think many players, again, on autopilot might say, oh, well, now I have a pair and maybe it's good, so I'm just going to go ahead and bet it. But, you know, I give Dyer credit again because without too much thought and rather quickly, he checks again over to John Sin. So Dyer had a a chance on the turn and the river to make a mistake that would have cost him a few of his 177 million chips And he did not make a mistake on either street. The river checks through just like the turn. And Mannion wins a smallish pot with his two pair. So an interesting spot. Uh, Many times we like to look at big bets and big bluffs and big calls. But in this spot, I think Michael Dyer who was really playing championship-level poker at this championship final table, found a way to make a big check, not only on the turn when he picked up a flush draw, but again on the river when he finally made a pair. So, nice hand. But even more so, that's the kind of focus I want to have this summer. Now, you know, we're recording this in early May. I'm very excited to get to Vegas. I have a huge schedule of uh, something like 
29 tournaments that I want to play this summer, and I hope that I don't play anywhere near that many because I just keep making day two and day three of everything. Or in some cases, day seven, eight, nine, and ten, <laughs> of course, in the main event. Uh, but you know, every hand, every street, every card, every decision counts towards your overall win rate. And you know these guys have been playing now for nine days, long, long days, and to have the kind of focus where you don't slip up and make an autopilot type of mistake is really, really important in the World Series of Poker. So I'm drawing some inspiration from watching this final table and how well a few of these guys played it for hours and hours and hours with the focus and the determination and the resolve to try to do whatever it takes to win the main event championship bracelet. So in the next few weeks, I'm going to try to plow through and get a few more hands from that final table. Uh, I expect to arrive in Las Vegas on or around May 31st. Um, I don't have any announcements yet as far as what my role, if any, will be on Poker Go, Poker Central, Twitch dot tv slash poker central or any of the other possible venues and the reason for that guys is that these things haven't been announced yet so i can't announce anything if there is anything to announce until it's been announced and that's just uh the way it works in this industry so uh, i wanted to update you guys real quickly before i sign off here uh, for those who are interested in the uh baseball wager that norman chad and i have both made uh, versus our beloved David Tuckman. Um, the Orioles must win over 58 and a half games. And as of the end of April, they had won 10 games. So baseball season is six months. And if they win 10 games a month for six months, that bet is going to cash on the good guy's side. So here's hoping they can win 10 games a month, uh, every month throughout this baseball season. Uh, guys, keep reaching out on Twitter at Clayton Comic. Um, if you have a longer question you want to email me, it's going to take me a little longer to get to those, but you can use poker at ClaytonFletcher.com. And that'll do it for this episode of the TPE Podcast. For everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.
Love nobody. Everybody, everybody. 